Well, folks, happy Sunday. And I hope you all had a, a lovely Guy Fox night last night. Uh, as many of you know, my, uh, my new dad is of British extraction. So now we uh, celebrate the death of a Roman Catholic political terrorist every year on the 5th of November, um, which is a new thing. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about Guy Fox, but I know the Brits really don't like that guy. Uh, I think he tried to blow up the parliament or something. Uh, but anyway, we had a lovely bonfire, and my voice is still recovering from it. Uh, so bear with me, but let's go ahead and dig into this gospel lesson uh, with the invitation of the Holy Spirit. Let's uh, go ahead and have a word of prayer. Merciful God, descend with your word like a dove. Anoint us with your Holy Spirit. And set us aflame, Lord. Send a word, your children listen. Amen. These questions about what happens after you die. They pursue Jesus. They kind of dog him through the Gospel of Luke about this. And it's natural to be curious about these sorts of things, but one of my favorite things about Jesus, about our Savior, is that he refuses to give a direct, clear, perfect answer to that question. It's almost as if he's saying to us over and over again, I could explain it to you, but you wouldn't get it. Or maybe I can teach it to you, but I can't understand it for you. And so he often answers with these kind of curious riddles. Where he talks about resurrection today. He references Moses in the burning bush. All right? Well, he's talking about here not the resurrection of Moses or the resurrection of an individual, but the resurrection of a tribe, a people. Right? That's what goes on in that story of Exodus. The people are resurrected out of bondage into freedom. But that's not some kind of literal life after death for an individual that flits off to heaven. Rather, it's resurrection from captivity to freedom. And he does this again and again and again. And they can't seem to pin him down on this. And I think that that's important to him. This past week on, on Monday, we had to say goodbye to a, one of our beloved pets, our cat Lucy. She was 18 years old. And she was in a great deal of pain. And so we had to take her to the vet and say goodbye to her for the last time. And we are a country folk, and so we do have a little pet cemetery uh, that we've established near our home. And uh, we've, it's now got two little gravestones. I took a little stone and inscribed the name Lucy on it, and she's buried there, right next to Broccoli Frog, uh, who was a frog uh, who died. And uh, my eldest insisted that he be buried with full honors. Uh, and so Broccoli Frog is also there with a headstone. And the children go, and they went on Tuesday, and they picked some flowers, and they put them down for Lucy. But that night, we kind of initiated them into our practice around death and dying, which is to tell our favorite stories. So we told Lucy stories. Now, Lucy was Heather's first, and so far, only pet. She didn't grow up with animals. And it was hard on her. My wife loved that cat. As far as I could tell, that cat didn't really love anybody. <clears throat> Toward the end, she got a little bit friendlier, uh, but, uh, but she was a pretty fearsome little beast, and she moved eight times with us as we lived the life of graduate students. And so most of my memories of Lucy are her trying to kill me while I'm driving a moving van, uh, just me and her there in the cab of the thing. But that gift of sharing our fond remembrances of those who have passed, be they human or animal, 
That's a heavenly treasure. Those are little gems that we give each other. And they're proof that life can be abundant if we would only take the time to reflect upon it. Jesus is saying to them, these Sadducees, who identify this woman not as a person of light, life, glory, good stories, but simply as a wife. Her whole role in life seemed to be passed down from brother to brother. And Jesus is calling them to say, you don't get it. That's not her. She's an angel. That's what she's like. He refuses to let them demean her, to turn her into a piece of property. Because he knows that even in this story, there is still some joy and some good. Life exists. Life exists in such abundance that for me and for John Calvin, it can mean nothing other than there is a creator. There is some non-contingent creator that gave birth to all of this beauty. This past week, I also took an examination so that I can legally sell mushrooms in the state of Michigan. This is part of my operation to become a mushroom farmer. We shall see. But I learned a great deal about mushrooms. Mushrooms are fascinating and mysterious. And mushrooms operate in this liminal space between life and death. They take that which is dead and give life to it. But mushrooms also serve an important ecological role. They make it possible for trees to communicate with each other underground. Mushrooms, we see that little mushroom that pops up out of the ground, but that's only a little teeny tiny part of the whole organism. Most of the mushroom we never see. It's underground. We'll never see it. You can't dig it up. Most of it is a network of mycelium and cells. The mushroom makes that little mushroom toadstool thing there the same way an apple tree makes apples. In the same way the universe seems to make people. So I'm interested in this text because Jesus is saying, perhaps, y'all are really fascinated by that mushroom. But there's a lot more that you're not seeing, that you're missing. And in fact, I couldn't explain it to you with words, even if I tried. Andy Weir is a science fiction writer. He's probably most famous for the book he wrote, The Martian. When they made it into a movie, I think it was Matt Damon. They shot him into space, and he had to live on Mars for five years, and they got him back. Was it Matt Damon? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Anyway, before that, he was a short story writer. He wrote a beautiful short story called The Egg. And it was his adaptation of some very Eastern mythology around souls and Atman and Samsara, and the, or reincarnation and that sort of thing. But it was from the perspective of the fellow who died. A man arrives right after having died, and he encounters another person. And he says, is this heaven? And the other fellow says, eh, more or less. And he says, well, this isn't what I was expecting. And the other guy says, well, yeah, you always say that when you get here. He says, what do you mean? Have I been here before? He says, oh, yeah, you've been here lots. He said, well, what happens next? He says, well, I've got to send you back. He said, what do you mean? So reincarnation? He said, oh, yeah, basically. What am I going to be reincarnated as? And the fellow says, you're going to be um, a Chinese peasant girl living in the 5th century. He says, that sounds rough. And the guy goes, well, sometimes. <laughs> he says, how many times am I going to have to do this? And the guy says, "Till you're done. 
you're going to do it for every single life that has ever lived or ever will live. Then he's sent back. This isn't a new way of thinking. In fact, there is Christian theology around this concept, the great uh, sort of titan of Christian resurrection theology and the great Catholic mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin wrote about this. In de Chardin's cosmic worldview, he applied the same logic. He said, yeah, there's a soul. The soul is called the son of man. And the soul will inhabit every single life until at last that soul is born into a body in a manger in Bethlehem under the cruel yoke of the Roman Empire lives, is crucified brutally, and then is resurrected for the last time to sit at the right hand of God in glory. He wasn't excommunicated for this thinking because it's based in the Bible. Remember, Jesus says, Jesus doesn't say in the golden rule, treat your neighbor as you would like to have your neighbor treat you. Jesus doesn't say, Treat your neighbor as if your neighbor was yourself. Jesus says, treat your neighbor as yourself. So in a certain understanding, he is saying, beloved, you are, you are your neighbor. All the good that you do for other human beings in this life, you're doing to you. And all the harm that you visit upon others, you're visiting upon yourself. And so murder is a kind of suicide. And abuse, shouting abuse at a woman in a parking lot. You're just harming yourself. And the good that you do for the poor that come before you with tears in their eyes and a hollow feeling in their belly, you're doing unto yourself, for you will walk that life. And Jesus says, of those who come, they are like angels, but they are children of God. Okay. Nothing is lost. Nothing is ever lost for God. This can be intimidating if you actually start to apply it to your life. I give a lot of money to a lot of people on the street when I'm thinking this way because it's me and I'm hungry. And it can cause you to have fear because of all of the pain that's in the world. And Paul doesn't want us to be afraid. Because fear leads to anxiety and a fear of scarcity. Paul wants us to remember that it's all going to work out. That's why he says, comfort, comfort, eternal comfort, good hope. Comfort your hearts. Strengthen them. Don't be afraid. Don't be overcome by this. But inherent in this message that we will never be separated from one another because the soul and the breath of God is intrinsic to all of us means that we have to fight for justice means that we have to stand up for that woman. It means that we have to feed the hungry. We have to make space at the table for those who've been outcast and shunned. It means that we can't be anything other than open and affirming. Because we ourselves know what it would be to languish outside the doors of a church wanting only to come in and praise God. But being told that there's something wrong with us. And so we can't. We have to do these things because we know that nothing is lost to God, including each and every one of our souls. His God is not simply God of the dead, but of the living. All of the life in the universe 
sings its praise and glory to its creator. And so I want to leave you with this thought and remind you of this sort of David Foster Wallace story, of course, about the fish. Everybody's heard this. It's been told to death. Two young fish are going to work as their business fish, carrying their little fish briefcases. And they're swimming to their jobs, and an old fish comes back, and he's swimming the other way. And he says to him, how's the water today, fellas? And the fish swim on, and one of the young fish says to the other, what the heck is water? It's all water. It's all creation. You're not in God's creation. You're not living on the earth. You're not some foreign presence here in the world. You are it. You are the world. As much as the apple is a part of the apple tree, as much as the mushroom is part of the mycelium, you are of God's kingdom. You are of it. And you can't be separate from it. You can never be separated from it. Whatever the condition of your life, whatever pain you're in, but also whatever good you can do, whatever hope you can muster, whatever gifts you can put into the world, you're giving into the creation. You're sowing those seeds of goodness, seeds like the mustard seed, seeds of hope and not despair. So know too that when you give out of a sense of abundance and gratitude, you are in fact giving joy and abundance your own life because your life here in this world is bound up in it and the justice work that we do we don't simply do it because we have this paternalistic sense of love for the poor the downcast we do it out of a clear understanding that our salvation and our liberation is completely bound up in the salvation and liberation of those who we fight for that's it. If they're not free, we're not free. And until they're free, we have to fight. Now, your fight and our fight and my fight may look different, just as everyone's struggle may look different. But the way in which we do justice through love, mercy, and charity can be the same for all of us. Give what you can, and don't ever be afraid to receive because you're receiving that love, joy, and glory from the creation into the creation. All of God's word, and by that I mean the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, all of this, all that God spoke into creation, Jesus tells us, will return to God. He says, not a single word will be lost. You're in that word. You're in it. And so you will be saved. Because God is bringing all of this back to God. Is it hard to understand? I think so. I think communion is a holy mystery. I do it out of this filial sense because Jesus said do it. He didn't say comprehend it. He said do it. Likewise, these texts about what happens after we die and all of this, they're very challenging texts. They're hard to comprehend, but they're not hard to do. It is not difficult to say, here, take as you have need out of my abundance. 
So this week, again, I want to encourage you out there in the world and the mission field to simply be doers, not, not seeking to be comprehenders, understanders, people who have to have some kind of logical, uh, a common sense understanding of why and how, but rather to simply trust in the word of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and to do as much good as you can. Be the church. Protect the environment. Care for the poor. Forgive often. Reject racism. Fight for the powerless. Share earthly and spiritual resources. Embrace diversity. Love God and enjoy this life. That's it. That's the doing of the word. And folks, it works. That I can say with confidence. And let all God's children say, Amen.